Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Football Social Daily. Welcome to Football Social Daily. This is your Premier League podcast from the sports social team. And the top flight of English football very rarely throws up surprises. But when it does, my word, are they exciting. One thing that isn't a surprise is refereeing controversy. In the Manchester derby, there was plenty of that. There was also controversy in the North London derby. United and Arsenal, the two red sides of the derbies respectively, were victorious. And we'll get stuck into that on today's episode of the show. We'll also take a deep dive into the latest Premier League transfer news as Chelsea look to upset their North London rivals Arsenal by signing a highly sought after Ukrainian wide man. And it's a Monday, so we're going to be launching some things that we didn't like from the weekend into the sea. My name's Niall and alongside me in the studio today to get through it all, we've got Joel Tudor and Jim Salverson. How are you doing, boys? Very good, thank you. Well, from a footballing perspective, pretty bloody terrible but from a life perspective I'm feeling alright yes West Ham of course beaten by Wolves that was a big one at the bottom wasn't it it's very early to have a relegation six pointer isn't it but I think it might end up being a relegation six pointer it might be a P45er for David Moyes as well potentially (laughs) and Joel um, have you caught your breath back yet because you were absolutely blowing when you walked into the studio because you've been doing what have you been doing saving penalties against the ladies from the sales (laughs) team yeah I just wanted to show everyone that I'm a bit bit of a Peter Schmeichel use my frame for a bit (laughs) of strength Um, working hard (laughs) (laughs) yeah obviously had a good weekend with the derby it's been a good Monday been a good Monday for Joel so far and we're going to make it even better because we're going to give you a chance to get some stuff off of your chest with Get In The Sea. If you've not listened to Football Social Daily before, then Get In The Sea is where we have a chance to have a bit of a Monday moan about the things we didn't like across the weekend's Premier League action. We'll start with you, Jim. And apart from the fact that West Ham were beaten and looking quite serious trouble when it comes to relegation at this point, what was it that wound you up the most that you'd like to launch into the deep blue today? Well, I considered West Ham and David Moyes leaving all his summer signings or virtually all his summer signings on the bench for the Wolves' defeat, despite having one of the most exciting young strikers in Europe available, decided not to play him, didn't decide to go with that. I considered the Manchester United offside goal that robbed me of a very decent looking bet over the weekend and also robbed City of the points, but I figure we're going to talk about that later anyway. So instead I thought I'd talk about Everton Football Club and the trouble that we've seen not so much from the protests that were outside the ground ahead of the weekend, because I think football fans do have a right to protest. And in general, the protests were on the right side of the line. So they were well, kind of, well mannered in the yeah, main, weren't they? Ish. I mean, it was kind of touch and go at some points and you saw the coaches arriving and kind of the fans were banning, banging on the edges of the coaches. But we've seen much worse in recent years in terms of coaches physically being attacked. But what I thought was really disappointing at the weekend was the Everton board and owners not being able to attend the football match because there was a genuine threat to their life. And I don't remember that ever happening in any football game, in any scenario where the police 
and the security services have advised people not to attend a football match because they are at risk from being killed, which is an absolutely insane sentence to say out loud. And I understand that football fans get annoyed. I understand why Everton fans are annoyed at the moment when you consider where they were as a football club 10 years ago. They were in that position that so many football clubs have found themselves previously where they are the, the next team that looks like they're going to break into the top four or the top six. They were there that not that long ago. They've had the money come in and they thought that would be the fuel into the rockets to get them into that position. And exactly the opposite has happened. And I completely understand how that is a horrible situation for Everton fans to be in. And they have a right to feel aggrieved with the way the football club has been managed. But, and this is something that people say to wind other people up when they get upset about football, it's only a game. But it is only a game. And the mm. idea that someone can go to a football ground and potentially lose their life is so far over the line and so extreme that I think it's really disappointing that some fans are willing to take it that far. far. I thought what was particularly shocking was I think the CEO of Everton, Denise Barrett-Baxendale, was actually put in a headlock I didn't by a that. supporter. I'm not sure whether that was at the weekend's match against Southampton or whether that happened prior to that, but I certainly saw reports of that being the case. There was a video that surfaced of Yerry Mina trying to leave the ground with his children in the car, yeah. being blocked in in one of the roads near Goodison Park by some Everton supporters I'm totally with you. I think football fans, by their very nature, have a right to protest because I think the fabric of football clubs in this country are woven into the culture of the UK, woven into people's lives in a way that any owner who comes in and buys a club, no matter how rich they are, will have no idea. Farhad Mashiri, you know, he could have lived in the stands at Goodison Park for the last 10 years and he wouldn't know what it means to truly be an Everton yeah. fan. So I do think that they're, you know, by their very nature, have a right to protest, but you've got to do it the right way. And I think getting your chief executive in a headlock is probably not the right way to do it. No, it's 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 just taking it too far, isn't it? And also, I don't know what good you could see coming from that scenario. If, I mean, what, 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 what's, what result do they want? What's the ultimate aim of these people who are getting angry mm. and threatening and manhandling and being generally aggressive and violent towards the I club. Don't want to perform on Because the, play, the players have been strange, rubbish, right? The players have been rubbish. Yeah. But is Yerry Mina going to be going home after that incident where he's been trapped in a blockade? Hmm. Is he going to go home and think, I'm going to play out of my skin next week? No. Or is he going to be petrified of making a mistake? Is he going to be saying to his agent, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't exactly. like it here anymore. Get me out of here. I don't think that the outcome of those sorts of protestations are as positive as some people think they'll be. No, and it creates a negative impact and a toxic environment at the football club as well. So players, sometimes they react well to a hostile environment in the stadium occasionally, but that can equally go the other way. But certainly if they feel like their homes are being targeted or their families are going to be targeted, that doesn't bring you goodwill. That doesn't buy you goodwill with the fan base. And certainly if the ultimate aim of Everton supporters, and it is the minority, as always with this kind of thing, it is the minority. If their ultimate aim is they want the current ownership out or the current manager out and a new manager or new ownership in, does it make the appeal of Everton Football Club bigger? Is someone going to look at what the fan base are doing and go, oh, I really fancy sticking X amount, a billion quid into that football club to buy it. Or I really want to sign for that club because when things turn the wrong way, someone's threatening my life. No, 
it doesn't it doesn't do anyone any favors at all and it's just not it's just not the way to act in life or in football is it so what are you chucking in the sea, Jim? I can't remember. <laughs> Something to do with Everton. It's getting in the sea. Don't anyway. Everton fans that are taking it too far. Okay, in the sea it goes. Joel, moving on to you. Lots of action in the Premier League this weekend. Two big derby matches, which we'll come on to. A fair bit of controversy as well, which isn't to be unexpected at times in the top flight because it does mean a lot, particularly on those derby days. But what would it be for you that you want to cast off into the sea today? Um, it almost p- piggybacks off what Jim was saying and that was basically similar behaviour at the Arsenal and Spurs game mm. with at the end pretty distasteful mm. scenes where Ramsdale was in the end of the Tottenham fans I don't know if he did anything to antagonise kind of them a, a sort of touch the Arsenal badge and stroke right, them, which kind is of made of a few faces it's going to gonna ha- it's gonna happen the give and take a fan and a player have a relationship which is that you give and take and then when the final whistle goes you know you can give him abuse all you want but the fact that there's one fan brought it upon himself to come all the way down from the stands and try and kick him from the from the crowd. It's just not necessary at all because it almost brings such a bad light to football in general um, and just what it's all about. Because I know Derby days, regardless of who you support, are always very fierce encounters and there's a lot of emotions, a lot of red mist, not only for the players, but also for the for the fans as well, probably more so than, than the players. And just the fact that it just ended that way because Arsenal had just come off the back of an amazing win at Tottenham. The first win, I think, away to Tottenham since 2014. Yeah, which the is, last time they, the last time Arsenal have done the double over Spurs that they had this season, Mikel Arteta was playing for Arsenal. Inc- this is what I mean. And then it almost Arsenal ended. Arsenal had never won at that ground before. Going. And they never, they, but even Wembley, White Hart Lane since 2014. So it had been a long run. And just the fact that they had such a great win and then it ended in that way. I'm not saying it was Ramsdale's fault because, like I say, you, you, you antagonise the fans. Of course, it's not going to have the greatest reaction. But yeah, it just didn't bring up a great light to Arsenal's. You know, it ended in a lot of commotion where you saw Mikel Arteta running after Granite Xhaka to make sure he didn't get a yellow card, and everything was everywhere. It almost felt like. It felt to me like a very, very premature celebration. Almost like the celebration you get, you know, when you're three games away from a title and you can almost feel like it's, it's home nearly. It felt that way in terms of the celebration. I don't know if it's a little bit premature. And I'm not saying they're not allowed to celebrate, but it felt like it was a massive moment for them. But let's wait until Sunday mm. because Ooh. I'll give them a good moment then. Well, I know you don't like Arsenal anyway, Joel. You've made that pretty clear over the, <laughs> the years that you've been on this podcast. But... You've got to like this Arsenal team, though. It's kind of like the oh, old Arsenal team. team with mm. Henri in it where you wanted to hate him because they were winning, but they were just playing some really nice, silky football. Yeah. And you looked at them and went, oh, they, this is the... it, begrudgingly, I like it. And I think there's an element of that with this Arsenal team because they've got the young players in there and the young England players and they're playing nice yeah, yeah. football. You look at it and kind of go, actually, they're all right. Well, let's talk about that in more detail a little bit later <laughs> okay. on in the podcast. But Joel, I think I'm absolutely with you throwing that Tottenham supporter into the sea for trying to kick Aaron Ramsdale. Um, Lifetime ban. I, I think you should. Be, I think you should yeah. be banned. You can't yeah. be attacking players. That's that's not acceptable uh, on the field of play at all. Um, for me, that was certainly going to be my one to chuck in the sea. Um, I could easily throw my own team Pompey in the sea, but it's nothing to do with the Premier League. We are absolutely. They're always in the sea. <laughs> we are dreadful. So yeah, we're pretty much a, an island city on the sea. Um, just sink Portsmouth. vulnerable to waves. Sink it always. like Atlantis. Get rid of it. I don't want to. I don't want to deal with this anymore. Spinnaker tower just yeah. sticking out the yeah. top and the horizon. Yeah. That's all we need. Build Fratton Park on top of that on a platform somewhere. What I want to chuck in the sea is Chelsea handing out these ridiculously long contracts, seven and a half years. This new lad Mudrick, the 
Ukrainian, who we'll talk about a bit later on on FSD today, it looks like he's going to get an eight and a half year contract. And I was speaking to Marley about this before recording today's episode of the podcast, and he thinks it's just a way, Jim, for Chelsea to get around the FFP rules. Eight and a half year deal. So it means the wages are spread out over a longer period and it doesn't fall into a certain threshold of which Chelsea had to adhere to. Yeah, because the the financial rules split over the life of a contract. Of course. So it means that Chelsea can space out the payments rather than a traditional two and a half or three year contract, which means they would have to pay more in the short term. Um, They've done it with pretty much all the players they've signed. It's annoying because... What happens if Madrid comes or Badiashile, who's just signed as well, they come and they're rubbish? I mean, uh, they're trapped. They're forced to stay at Chelsea because no club is going to pay seven years worth of contract fees mm. to, to buy them out of their contract. It's just never going to happen. I think Marley's right. It is down to that transfer fee being spread over the life of the contract and it helps Chelsea get around FFP. And apparently they want to spend another 100 million quid later this window. So. They've got to do that somehow, otherwise they're going to fall foul of the rules. I mean, whether it traps a player at a club or not, I don't know. I think contracts are kind of not really worth the paper they're written on in terms of keeping players at clubs. If a club wants to get rid of a player, it doesn't really matter. If a player wants to leave a club, it doesn't really matter how long is left of their contract. There probably is an element as well of Chelsea protecting their assets because... A four-year contract, fine. If you buy a young player who's not going to develop properly for two years, by the time he's getting first-team football, suddenly there's two years left of his contract. And when you get to the final two years of a contract, there's then that query as to... Very blurry lines, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, are they going to re-sign? Not, Do you yeah. have to get rid of them? So I think there's probably six of one, half a dozen of the other. Mm. But, yeah, it's... It's still going in not, the seat. It's something we've not seen before, is it? Chelsea's These long, long contract still going in the seat. I mean, the amount of stick that Newcastle got for giving Mike Ashley... A, uh, not Mike Ashley... Alan Pardew, mm. Mike Ashley's old uh, drinking buddy, um, a seven-year deal at St. James's Park when he was there and then Palace came and obviously bought him out of that and took him down to Selhurst Park at the time. That was a good few years ago, you know, but still, I mean, that was the only time that I can remember it being such a lengthy contract and we still talk about it to this day and now Chelsea edition out nearly decade-long contracts. Absolutely remarkable. So that's going in the sea for me. Interestingly, because Joel's a Manchester United fan, Jim supports West Ham, so he's got his own concerns. Uh, the Bruno Fernandes controversial goal in the Manchester derby wasn't thrown into the sea, but it doesn't matter because we're going to talk about it next after this here on Football Social Daily. Welcome back. This is FSD. I'm Niall. Joel and Jim are with me and we're going to talk about the two big derby games in the Premier League, which took place over the weekend on Saturday lunchtime at half 12. It was the 189th Manchester derby, United versus City. The Reds were in absolutely fine form. The Blues had just come off the back of a rather unusual defeat midweek. Uh, a lacklustre display, to say the least, against Southampton in the Carabao Cup. Many people were expecting City to respond. Many people weren't sure how United would play at home with the form they've had. And in the end, it were the Reds who came out on top by two goals to one. City took the lead after United dominated the first half. Jim, Jack Grealish with a header. And then the equaliser for Manchester United is where all of the gripes from the blue half of Manchester are coming from. Mm. The ball was played through by Casemiro to Marcus Rashford, who is undoubtedly offside. He runs towards the ball. He doesn't touch the ball. But Bruno Fernandes comes from an onside position and sweeps the ball into the back of the net. The assistance flag goes straight up. We have a VAR check. The referee blows his whistle and gives the goal as good. So Bruno Fernandes' strike stands. 
The question mark is whether Marcus Rashford interfered with play. Is he offside? Should it have stood? Now, in, without going into forensic detail here and trying to explain the letter of the law and stuff like that, City fans are off. Can you see why? I mean, I didn't watch the game live and I saw the reaction on social media before I saw the decision, saw, before I saw the goal, inverted commas. And whenever there's a goal in a big match and a rivalry and it's offside, there's always a bit of debate and there's, oh, how could that be offside? They don't understand the rules. It's dodgy <laughs> interpretation, whatever it is. It happens every single corruption. time. Corruption. Always the corruption card gets pulled out. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And then I watched the replay of the goal and no one could possibly convince me that that was a goal because in no reading of the rules should that be allowed. I think if you boil it down, so you boil down the lengthy offside rules, the ultimate argument is if a player is interfering with play, they are offside, Mm. whether it's touching the ball or affecting another player's position. And when you watch the replay, and if you haven't seen it yet, Rather than us describe it, go on social media, it's all over the place, go and have a watch of it, because it kind of beggars belief a little bit. The ball is virtually at Rashford's feet. It's moving in the same Mm. direction as him. When you see it with the naked eye for the first time, it looks like he's dribbling virtually. It looks like he's... Yeah, yeah. It looks looks like he's in possession of the ball. I know what you're saying. Yeah, Yeah. and at that one point, he even shapes to shoot, but doesn't make contact with the ball. Instead, he realises he's offside and lets it roll onto Fernandes, who sweeps it in. Now, if he's shaping to shoot, the goalkeeper, Edison, is preparing to move to save that shot, right? So it's affecting him. He's standing between the ball and the defender directly. I don't know who the City defender is, actually. But he's standing directly between him. If his physical position isn't there, the defender can get that ball and cut it out before Bruno Fernandes gets it. So there's two ways. Instantly, he's impacting play. He's blocking off a defender and he's changing the position that the goalkeeper has to save that shot and if that's not interfering with play mm. I don't know what is I'm, so I, without touching the ball it's the clearest example of a player interfering without with play without touching the football and if I was a City fan I'd be absolutely livid I'm livid because I had the game down as a draw and <laughs> a few quid that's why yeah. extra venom's exactly. coming from yeah exactly but <laughs> you, there's no one that could argue and in a way that makes sense that that should have been a goal and I'd yeah. be furious if I was a City fan or yeah. Guardiola mm. and I was in the ground actually and at the time by looking on the monitor I thought that Rashford was offside and I didn't think the goal was going to stand um, and it did so I was pretty surprised at that I think what's worth pointing out though is that Manchester United I think on the whole were the better team and I think Manchester City fans say well at the time that the offside goal was given it was at a period when City were 1-0 up and they were dominating the second half Absolutely true, but I think on the whole, over the 90 minutes, Manchester United were the better side on the day. I don't think that can be argued. I think Manchester United created more chances. They had more shots. Rashford, uh, who actually pulled up at one point, we thought he might come off, Joel, with an injury, scores again, scores the winner. You just knew it was going to be Rashford. It, It had to be him with the form he's in. That's now... I think, is it nine games at Old Trafford in a row that he's scored in? So he's making the place a a playground. And what it's done, it's not only give Manchester United bragging rights in the derby, it means they're on 38 points, which is level with Newcastle and now just one behind Manchester City. Got Palace on Wednesday, go to Arsenal on Saturday. Are Manchester United creeping up on the top spots in the Premier League? It's way, way, way too soon. I know everyone's desperate to have Man United back in a title race for all the nice propaganda on Sky. I don't think everyone is. (laughs) Not the ones that United have heard from the childhood. If they beat Crystal Palace on Wednesday, that takes them to 41 points. 
They then go to Arsenal. If they beat Arsenal at the Emirates, and the only team to have beaten Arsenal in the league this season was Manchester United at Old Trafford in about September time. So that puts them on 41. If they beat Arsenal, that will put them on 44 points. Three points behind Arsenal. Second in the table. So Manchester United, they win their next two, including that one against Arsenal. You say that they're not in the title race. If you go and win the next two games, Joel, you're three points behind no, Arsenal. What I would say is that Arsenal game is will basically determine really realistically what's going to happen because it's very easy to say on paper if we beat Palace and we beat Arsenal, we're there. But Arsenal have not dropped barely any points at home this season. They've only been defeated by United, which was a pretty pendulum-swinging game, I would say. There's just too... It's way too early to say, just in the, the basis that there's another half of the season to go. We're only halfway yet. I know that Arsenal still have to play Manchester City twice, which is a pretty big thing considering we've played them both times. But if you say that we're in it, then you have to say Newcastle are in it because they're pretty much creeping up and they've got more consistency mm. than mm. we have at the moment. One again at the weekend. Right, bit of exactly. Luck, of course, with they've the lost one game penalty, all but... season. That's insane. Yeah. More like the same drawing as Arsenal. Arsenal. Yeah. Same as Arsenal. Yeah. So you've got to say that they're in it. Um, it's Arsenal's to lose for sure just because it is very much in their control because they have to play City twice. But I think the game on Sunday will pretty much realistically determine whether we have the minerals to continue this consistent run because a lot was said of our run prior to the Arsenal game of you played Bournemouth, you played Wolves, like the crap opposition. We've just gone and beaten the Premier League champions, I would say not convincingly, but we went toe-to-toe with them but easily. So to go and do the double over Arsenal, then I would 100% say, we're in it, but I don't think we have the capability to stretch it out because we've just bought Wild Vegas. I don't know that's going to be enough to take us over the line. Can I ask a potentially silly question? And I don't think I necessarily believe this, but are City a worse team with Erling Haaland in the squad than they are without it? Because I think they looked a little bit one-dimensional against Manchester mm. United at times. And the best performance mm. from City in the last few weeks has been the 4-0 over Chelsea when he didn't play. And they kind of played what we associate with City yeah. more previously, more so in that game where it's a very bit fluid. more free-flowing yeah. Yeah, and very fluid. I, Whereas, I don't know, Erling Haaland is a fantastic player. He's a fantastic finisher. And his movement in the box, I've never seen anything like it in terms of I movement mean, and positioning. But does he make them better as a I team? I don't understand what the angle of the question is. And I've seen people speak about this before because... When you say, do they play better, do you mean more attractive on the eye or play better as in get results? Because if you look at their results, they lost 2-1 to Brentford before the international break mm. for the World Cup. Big defeat. Big defeat. That was a last minute goal for Brentford. And that really hurt them. They drew 1-1 with Everton at home. Poor result. And then they've lost here to Manchester United at Old Trafford, as well as being knocked out of the Carabao Cup. So form at the moment for City is patchy. Mm. With or without Erling Haaland, they're not playing very well. What I would say is someone who scored 21 goals by the end of November, or should I say mid-November, because that Brentford game before the World Cup was the 12th of November. Mm. 21 Premier League goals. I don't understand how anyone can say a team isn't as good when well, you've got a player. And it was a similar debate about Ronaldo at Manchester United yeah. last season, if you remember. That's the slight paradox, isn't it, here with Erling Haaland? Because has a Premier League team ever had a player that has scored 21 goals and they've not been top of the table. That's half of Man City's Premier League goals this season have come from one man. 
Well, when you look at Guardiola's previous teams, he's never really been a guy who's had a target man. When he went to Barcelona, he got Ibrahimovic yeah. out fast, mm-hmm. like fast as hell. And then he had Samuel Eto'o, who is a little bit more like Aguero in terms of technical ability. Then at uh, Bayern Munich, he had Lewandowski, who's one of the most technical strikes I've ever seen. But do you think Aguero it's strange? Aguero at City. Because they've been looking for a striker for two and a half years. They tried to get Kane. They tried. They, they've got Haaland. But Kane's a different player. Very Harland. different. More I, I, technical. Underst- understand, but they've been I understand looking Jim's for a striker. So we're, that... to- we're talking about City playing not as well with a striker, but that's exactly the sort of player mm. that Guardiola has been looking for. Someone to fill that nine position. And I'm kind of with you. It is a ridiculous argument to say you've got a player who scores 21 goals Record and breaking. he makes you worse, <laughs> it, which just, is why I'm kind of hesitant. I don't think. About I don't think it's worse. It's just it's a different way of Guardiola's play because I think the best City team I saw was the one who had Leroy Sane. Uh, Raheem Sterling, maybe Gabriel Jesus or Aguero. But again, Aguero is a totally different profile mm. to Haaland. I think with Haaland, everyone forgets he's super quick. He can run in behind, but City have not got any space to run in behind because the pin team's back for 90 minutes. So I think he just needs to find... I think the reason why we're talking about this is because Arsenal have hit a different dimension. If think, it wasn't for Arsenal, City would be... Well, City aren't play. playing very well. If you look at the top teams, Manchester United have won their last five league games in a row. City have the same form as Tottenham, who are fifth. Lost two, drawn one and won two of their last five games. So seven points from the last 15 available. Arsenal have got 13 from the last 15 available. Manchester United have got 15 from the last 15 available in the Premier League. Newcastle, 14 of the last 15 available in the Premier League. So it's 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 sort of the difference is Manchester City have not been playing as well as they should be. And I just don't think that there's... People will always try and find an excuse for that. But they're still second in the table. Uh, decent points gap between them and Arsenal. And we should talk about Arsenal now, really, because we mentioned the North London derby briefly when we were doing Get in the Sea. But a comprehensive win, really, Jim, for the Gunners on their enemy's territory. Good goal from Martin Odegaard to rattle in the second, make it 2-0. Spurs didn't really get near them. Lloris threw the ball in his mm. own net for the first goal. I mean, Arsenal, a lot of people are saying that they'll fade away or they won't be able to maintain it. They're clearly the favourites for the title now for me. I think we've been waiting for the last four weeks or so for Arsenal to implode and something to go wrong. And this (laughs) felt like it could have been that potential banana skin. And yet again, they just sailed through it. And they were by far one away the better team. Whether it was Spurs being particularly rubbish, whether it was Arsenal being particularly good, it's always two sides of the same coin. It's difficult to tell. But I think Arsenal, you're right, they are the real deal. They'll just seem to be powering through anyone that's ahead of them. And everyone thought Gabriel Jesus's injury could potentially derail them because he was having a strong season up to the point he got injured. Maybe not contributing the goals that some expected, but certainly he was an important linchpin in that Arsenal forward line. And then you've got Enketia steps in and starts to suddenly look the part. So there's something special happening at Arsenal. And we called this a little while ago. You look back to that terrible run of Arteta in Arsenal was it last season last season through December last season, period yeah. when he was close games. to being sacked and there was a lot of calls that he, there was there was nothing going on there it was kind of like his time was up he wasn't having the impact and I think on this podcast we were pretty new, unanimous in that we felt there was something happening we felt there was like a project developing and now I think you're seeing that project kind of come to the fore but they definitely look the real deal I still don't believe they're going to win the title I don't know what it is it's just it's just Arsenal, isn't it? And the aura they have, you don't quite expect them to get over the line, but they're creeping closer. And we already mentioned the Manchester United game. That's another potential banana spin skin. But if they win that... Potential catalyst as well. It can yeah, go either exactly. way. I mean, some, I have no doubt that 
that team believes at the moment. Yeah, because they play. With you can belief. tell by the way they celebrate after games. They know it. They can. T- they can taste it. And exactly. it's just it's not. It's just not close enough yet. It's the blend of youth and experience as well. You know, Martin Erdegaard. What's he? Early twenties, and he's the captain. Yeah, still considered one of the younger players in the team. I mean, I don't rate Eddie Nketiah whatsoever, but he's performing at the moment up front. A young centre forward for Arsenal and then they've got experience but experience in the form of 25, 26 year old Zinchenko Mm. who's just come from Manchester City where he's won everything and brought a mentality and you know there's elements to the squad where you do have players like Xhaka and Elneny who have Mm. been around the block a bit in the middle but they've also got young exciting players like Saka as well to complement that. It's a really exciting team when you look at the first 11 that was out yesterday and there is some really sensible, clever purchases. Not like Chelsea who are just buying technical attacking players every single week at the moment. It's like they've built a team. It's and a method in it, isn't it? I was reading something. It was Steve McInerney wrote it, who's been on Football Social Daily previously, a City fan, and he was talking about the impact that Zinchenko had at Manchester City was there. His impact isn't just on the pitch. He's a player who drives the rest of the team forward. He demands excellence. Apparently every single bit of advice that... Zinchenko was ever given by Pep Guardiola he kind of wrote down and put in a binder and he'd read it at home because he's that interested in kind of self-improvement and performance and that's the kind of character like you say he's only 25 but that's the kind of character that you need in a dressing room to take you to the next level someone who demands more of himself and his teammates every day and maybe that plays into the city thing as well maybe his absence in the dressing room has impacted them as much as it's impacted Arsenal and kind of improved them overall as an 11 as well. Well, Arsenal currently sit top of the pile in the Premier League. They are first on 47 points after beating Tottenham at the weekend. Manchester City, who lost to their rivals United, stay second on 39 points. So the maths tells you that there's a decent points gap there of eight. Newcastle remain in third position on 38 points after they beat Fulham right at the death. Controversial there with Alexander Mitrovic's hash of a penalty. Uh, Manchester United are also in the top four, level on points on 38. Tottenham are fifth, quite a way back, five points away from the Champions League spots now on 33. Fulham stay sixth and Liverpool and Chelsea, Chelsea finally getting a win under Graham Potter. Uh, They're they're 10th at the moment. Liverpool, after losing to Brighton, slipped to ninth. The Seagulls, seventh position. Let's have a look at the bottom of the table now quickly before we move on to the latest transfer talk. (laughs) You don't fancy it, Jim? Nah, let's well, not bother. All four of the bottom teams were in action against each other. Southampton played Everton, whilst West Ham United played Wolves. And Wolves have moved up to 16th by virtue of the fact they beat your side, the Hammers, 1-0. It drops David Moyes' team into the relegation zone. Jim, panic stations yet for West Ham? Yep. I think if David Moyes stays in charge at West Ham, West Ham get relegated now. I think... You think he's, he's, it's gone that far? You think he's completely lost it? Yeah, I think he just seems to be lacking ideas. And I think it was it was demonstrated at the weekend. I joked, joked at the top of the podcast how he played, I think, I forget the exact number, six of his eight summer signings or whatever it was were on the bench starting against Wolves. And I think that signals a manager who's out of ideas when he's going, nothing's working, I'm going to go back to what worked last season. And he pretty much played the team that performed well last season. He doesn't seem to have the ideas to turn it around mid-game and he doesn't seem to have a different way to approach any of his future games. It's exactly the same every single time. It's not working, but still the same happens. The same setup, the same formation, the same players playing the same roles. And I don't see how the rot can be stopped now. What's really worrying is Everton's next. And I think that is a huge game for David Moyes and West Ham because that's mm. one of those games that we desperately need to pick up three points. And obviously so, Everton 
as we've already discussed today, under pressures of their own. Completely, so. yeah. I mean, that that's a... If Lampard and Moyes both make it through to that point in the season, if they both make it through to next weekend, they won't make it beyond next weekend. Why One of them is gone. Oh, God, can you imagine? Frank, I mean, Frank back at... Uh, the London Stadium back in East London, David Moyes back at his old stomping ground in Goodison. It kind of makes sense for David Moyes and I think actually he's the kind of manager who can go in and do a job. He's kind of got that impact where... He just he, needs to make them gritty again. Yeah, do, you think, do you think it goes stale like with Moyes quite quickly? He, he, Is that- yeah, and I think we see that with a lot of managers. They go in and make a team hard to beat and make them work hard and make them defensively solid but then when it comes to developing that squad further and doing something else, mm. they're kind of like a little bit short of ideas. Antonio Conte. But I, did already, say, I did say with Moyes though, I always thought when he has really good talent on his hands, he doesn't know how to manage yeah. it. And yeah. I, we've seen that. I mean, Lucas Paqueta, who's one of the most impressive yeah. guys in Legion last season. Give him and, 11 you know, Craig Skamaka. Dawson's. That's what you need to do. Yeah, like, give him 11 Craig Dawson's. And or Marouane Fellaini's. Yeah, exactly. He'll make him to a sell Craig team. Dawson. Well, no, he doesn't want to sell Craig Dawson. The board want to sell Craig Dawson because Craig Dawson wants to move up north. Wolves are interested. Mm. Didn't play in the weekend, so I think he's probably going to leave this week. But I've also heard rumours that the board are considering now who their options are ahead of David Moyes. And Benitez and... Benitez uh, and Nuno Espirito Santo, mm. who... It doesn't fill me with excitement. Are it's they like, upgrades on David Moyes? Yeah, they're very similar, aren't they? Yeah, they're kind of cut from the same cloth. Defensively minded coaches. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see the board, actually. If they genuinely want to take the next step and they want to build West Ham as a force in the top six, I think they need to kind of go out and get a progressive manager like a Thomas Tuchel or a Pochettino, whether they want to come to West Ham as well, another issue Brighton, When Potter left, Brighton went and got Roberto De Zerbi, mm. an Italian guy who's been at Sassuolo who are one of the sort of middling clubs in Serie A that not many people know a great deal about but they've done their research and he's fit into a model that works and I think that's the way that modern football is Brentford of course Thomas Frank I mean if he ever moves on I'm sure they'll have an idea of who they need to replace him but there was another rumour I was reading about West Ham in terms of transfer targets and there's a player I can't remember his name or where he's from so that's not particularly useful but the amount of money that was being touted for this player they wanted he was backup striker was £25 million and the concerns of West Ham was £25 million for a new striker was out of budget. So what kind of manager are you going to bring in? Who are you going to attract? Is Thomas Tuchel going to come and sign for a football club and go, you've got 25 million quid to spend, mate. Go on, build us a team. It's like, it, it's chump change, isn't it? There's not a lot you can do with that kind of money in Premier League football at the moment. So it's difficult to see how, even when West Ham do get rid of David Moyes, how they take that step to the next level and whether there is a genuine appetite to do that. I think the one thing that might save West Ham United if it really does get dicey is your goal difference. Minus 10, which means you're only 18th and not bottom of the pack. We've lost a lot of games 1-0 or 2-1. There's kind of been a lot of close defeats. There haven't been many teams that have actually thumped us this season. Mm. But it's going forward that's the real issue. And like you say, with players like Paqueta and Skamaka. Available. That's what I mean. Is there's not much that's fundamentally changed. If anything, from last season, you've gone better in personnel, mm. but you just don't have the manager who can take you to the next level. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I think if a new manager came in, he's got an amazing squad on his hands. It's not, I don't think you need too much more in there. No. You just need a guy who actually has a strategy and a system in place to get the most out of them. I mean, I think if you look, Skamaka is a front man target. You got Ben Rama potentially on the left. Dave Moyes doesn't like Ben Rama, so he hardly gets any game time. You've got Paqueta sitting in the middle, potentially playing that slightly more forward role. Then you've got Bowen on the right. You've got Declan, Declan Rice yeah. and, I mean, either Suchek or um, uh, Downs playing kind of that holding midfield. It's a really, it's it's a really solid looking yeah, squad yeah, yeah. that should be achieving at least mid-table. So 
I genuinely think I could probably do a better job than David Moyes at the moment. <laughs> well, you might be getting the phone call before long, Jim. Things stay <laughs> yeah, yeah. as they are. Bottom of the Premier League table, Southampton still sit 20th, even though they beat Everton at the weekend. 15 points, minus 17 goal difference. Everton also on 15 above them. And as Jim says, those two face off against each other, Everton and West Ham. And it's the Hammers who are 18th, completing the relegation zone just above with 16 points and hovering are AFC Bournemouth who have lost their last four top flight matches in a row. So that's how the Premier League table looks after another exciting weekend of top flight action. And we might see some fresh faces before too long. We're now, what, halfway through January? There's not been too many signings, but that might start to heat up. We'll talk about the latest transfer news here on Football Social Daily after this. Final part of today's episode of FSD. Don't forget if you hit subscribe, that way you won't miss an episode of the podcast again. And you also won't miss our big interview on Wednesday with Manchester United and Celtic legend Brian McClare. Brian won loads of trophies during his career, scored loads of goals, and he's also got some great stories as well. And you do not want to miss that. So make sure you hit subscribe and that way you'll stay in the loop as soon as a new podcast episode is released. But for now, we're going to talk about transfers because it is, of course, the January transfer window and the gossip columns today are throwing up some interesting stories let's just say that we'll start with Chelsea as we have done throughout the whole of this month because they always seem to be in and amongst it when it comes to the transfer news uh, Mikhailo Mudrik the Ukrainian winger who plays for Shakhtar Donetsk Joel it was pretty much said that he was going to go to Arsenal until the Ukrainian club wanted 80 odd million for him Arsenal weren't keen now Chelsea have stepped in and they've kind of I wouldn't say hijacked the deal but they've picked up where Arsenal left off so it looks like he's going to arrive for close to 100 million to Chelsea. This is a lad who, I'll be honest, I have no idea about. He scored nine goals in four years in Ukraine. <laughs> so I really failed to understand. Nine goals more than I've scored, to be fair. Against and me too, but then <laughs> nine again. Nine goals and you've scored in Ukraine. So, that, so yeah. does that mean each goal's worth, what, 12 million euros each? That's quite, a, that's quite an amount, but it's baffling to me the strategy there's I don't know if there even is a strategy because I know you said Jim about how Arsenal buy players to fit the mold mm. that they want I genuinely don't believe that's the case at Chelsea it's almost like they've got a, a roster list of every talented young player in Europe and he's just saying right let's tick that one off let's tick that one off get him on long-term contracts almost like a baseball approach well, where they're, they put they're on buying the same contracts. player over and over again that's the weird thing isn't yes, it yes you got Jao like... Felix who's very similar to Mudrik in terms of drifts out wide on the left maybe behind the striker and the thing that's the most baffling to me is they recently were trying to negotiate for Enzo Fernandez. And I know he's got a 120 million euro uh, buyout clause. And I know that's pretty astronomical for a guy who's just had a decent World Cup. But I think they would have been way better prepared putting that money towards him than Mudrik. And that's purely because their midfield is really mm. dying out. Like you've got Kante, I don't think he's going to be back until March. Kovacic, you can't do it all on his own. Jorginho's going on a free in the summer. It's, it's absolutely bare in that middle. And but he's they've got loads of forward players. They've got nearly 10 forwards Just on their books. Just signed Felix, of course. They've got about seven flipping left wingers, five right wingers. I know a few of them will probably go in the summer. Mm. But it just is, is Graham Potter, does he have a say? On how I don't he think wants, he does. Like, is he literally really just saying, okay, does. bring Mudrick in because he can, he's available? I think he's just on? been asked to coach with... Is he the coach and that's it? I think he, so. He was asked about the signing of Mudrick in the um, post-match after the game. And I don't think... He said, he was asked how it happened and he said, I have no idea how it happened. That was his response. Right, well, there you go then. And I think he was referring to 
how the deal was done to move him away from Arsenal rather than the fact that it was kind of like a, hey, I don't know how they got it done. It's amazing. Kind of that was right, that right, was right, what right. he said out loud. But obviously the way to read that is as a manager, you'd expect him to be on top of that and in, and the progress of that deal. So the fact he is certainly at least one step step removed in terms of where that is on the roster of likelihood of it happening. I think it, it does suggest that he is certainly removed in at least one aspect from transfers. And whether he's even drawing up a target list or even got a say in who's coming in is another question. But mm. you look at the, like you look at the like you say nine forwards, left wingers, right midfielders, whoever it is that Chelsea have got, they've got this swathe of attacking talent. But it, they all play the same way and they all do the same thing. They like the ball mm. at the feet. They're very, very technical. There's no variation. There's no options there in terms of switching it up. When you look at the Chelsea of old that had Giroud as an option up front when they wanted to kind of lump it to the big man. They're all very they're short, kind of, nippy players, aren't they? Yeah, not like, there needs well, to be a kind of bit of variation. I think, I think it's a good point you say about Potter there. It kind of is very telling of why Tuchel probably got dismissed. I think Tuchel was too abrasive for Todd Bowley to to manage. There's I mean, no way for me that Graham Potter is having a say in these signings. Because I can, I, imagine, I don't know. I'm not privy to inside information or anything like that. I just think Todd Bowley is treating Chelsea as his new little plaything, yeah. and he's thinking, "I'm going to sign this player, I'm going to sign this player, and I'm going to sign this player." He's playing fantasy football. He is, and just building on that, Jim. Football Insider are reporting that after only a year of being at Stamford Bridge, Chelsea are willing to listen to offers for Raheem Sterling. Yeah, I read that as well. Remarkable, really. The, the, the policy, they've spent over half a billion on players and managers in the last seven months, eight months since Todd Bowley's been there. Well, there will always be a churn of players, won't there, when there's a change of management or a change of ownership who come in with different ideas. And Raheem Sterling probably hasn't quite recaptured the form that he had. Oh, he's only had Manchester four City. months though, hasn't he? He hasn't played a great deal either. He's been kind of in and out of the squad. So it is... But you, but you can see how... Again, he's a technical player, isn't he? He's fast, likes the ball at the feet, and Chelsea have plenty of options there. So they do need to start offloading talent in some way. And it's, it's no massive surprise that one of those could be Raheem Sterling. Not only where he goes, but it's no surprise that he could be leaving Chelsea. So Raheem Sterling on his way, or at least Chelsea are listening to offers. That's according to the latest transfer news in the gossip columns. Um, Arsenal are obviously leaving this... Uh, Mikhailo Mudrik thing to one side, Joel. But they might well be interested in Belgium winger Leandro Trossard, who of course plays for Brighton, as well as being keen on trying to sign Rafinha, the former Leeds United player who's now at Barcelona. Um, both players uh, are in their 20s. Trossard, a bit older. Rafinha is is 26. So what do you make of those two players that have been linked, Rafinha and Trossard? Well, Trossard, his situation's really unique at Brighton just because his agents basically come out and said that he feels humiliated by De Zerbi, um and he's basically back in Belgium. His contract finishes in six months so Brighton aren't in the greatest position leverage wise. I mean he's had an amazing season so far. Um, he's been in the Belgian squad. He played a little few games in the World Cup and I think he'll be a pretty decent option from the right side I would say because he's a player that's banging form. But then do you want a player coming into the Arsenal setup who is currently being super abrasive mm. and has basically just left the country and said, I'm not having anything to do with that club? I think you have to really protect the harmony that's going on there with Arsenal. Um, as for Rafinha, it doesn't surprise me because Barcelona basically <laughs> are like a three-month pendulum swinger <laughs> where if you don't like him after three months, let's get rid of him. And, and we'll Aubameyang's on his way back, baby. Probably, yeah, he's he on his way back. back. God, Aubameyang's getting passed around more than... 
let's not go down any- <laughs> <laughs> but it's just it's, it's a strange situation because I know Arsenal were interested in him and Barcelona paid a ridiculous amount but I've never been a fan of going back in for a player who purposely rejected you to go to another club I don't see a reason I don't think he's I, I genuinely don't even think he's Barcelona level that's why I was surprised he even went there in the first place but what I think, is Barcelona level now though? well I mean they're doing amazing at the moment only because he did six goals all season. They just won the Super Cup. Xavi's got a special thing going on. The guys above them aren't special at all. He's really galvanised the club massively. Um, but Rafinha, I don't think he's Barcelona level. And I think Arsenal can do better than that. They I think with Mudrid, they need him. to... A lot. 60 million, which is a lot of money for Barcelona as well. But I think with Arsenal, they need to just look at the Mudrid deal. And I, I think the Arsenal fans will be quite happy with how they've dealt with that because they could have easily said, you know what, we're going to match everything they've done because we've gone in for him for the whole of January, but they didn't. They've stuck to the principles and I think they're good enough without having to buy another player, to be honest. You've got to be careful, haven't you, when you're in that kind of situation where you've got a team that is playing really well, there seems to be a tight unit, who you bring into right. that. Right, exactly. Trossard's like almost yeah. a gamble in a sense. And they've got still got players like Emil Smith-Rowe to come back Arsenal into that midfield mm. as well, so... Mm. There's a balancing act, and I, I have no doubt. I mean, Mikel Arteta will be the opposite of Graham Potter at Chelsea. He will be all over everything. He will have the. He's a student of Pep Guardiola. We say that enough. And Pep Guardiola is a man who likes detail. Yeah. And Mikel Arteta will be all over that. Yeah. There'll be as much about the personality of the players that he brings in. There'll be mu- as much attention on that as there will be about their technical ability. Yeah. Zinchenko, Jesus, and Erdegaard are much better signings than Torreira. And some of the other players they've had in that recent was the banter years. Era, you know, so, yeah. It wasn't great for Arsenal. Uh, final one we're going to talk about on today's Football Social Daily involves Liverpool and actually a midfield player who we've discussed on this podcast before when it comes to a potential transfer. And that's for Wolves midfielder Ruben Neves, who we said might well be on his way out of Wolves in the summer. Marley said it was a tap-in for Manchester United. He thought that they should have gone in and signed him. Instead, United have signed Ericsson and Casemiro. It's working out well for them. But it's Liverpool's midfield, Jim, which has been their biggest issue to date under Jurgen Klopp. They're not playing well. I think they've slipped, as we said, to eighth or ninth in the Premier League table. They look miles off the top four. Jurgen Klopp's starting to get a little bit more prickly than he usually is in his mm. press conferences. Um, Naby Keita, who they spent £50 million on a few years back, it's not really worked out for him. But the Daily Mirror say that they could look to replace him or at least bring Ruben Neves in from Wolves. Do you think that would be a move that worked? I think Ruben Neves is a fantastic player and probably slightly underrated because of the team he plays for. But he is the kind of individual that Liverpool could potentially start to build their midfield around and who could marshal that midfield for the next four or five years he's kind of that captain that you stick in the middle and he becomes the pendulum he becomes the player who everything goes through I think he's absolutely superb and I've got absolutely no doubt that he could step up to play within a team like Liverpool as well so yeah I I think it makes perfect sense and it's exactly the kind of player that Liverpool should be targeting whether they can afford the transfer fee I've no idea what they'd be asking for for Neves I think when they were talking about transferring a couple of years ago, it was around the £80 million mark, whether he's still going to command that or whether even given the transfer fees have accelerated so fast, it would be more than that, which is... So, oh, Christ, I almost just dropped my laptop on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> so much admiration for Ruben Neves. Yeah, no, yeah, very good player, worth the money, exactly the kind of player that Liverpool need, whether they can afford it and whether the board want to sanction, sanction that kind of transfer fee, particularly given that they're now looking at selling the whole football club as a whole is a completely different question. 
Okay, well, Ruben Nemesh is actually out of contract in 2024. Seems unlikely that he's going to sign a new deal at Molyneux, even if Kylian Lopetegui can try and persuade him to do so. So, you know, by the summer, he'll be only having a year left on his contract, which means that Liverpool might be able to sign him for a more reasonable fee from Wolverhampton Wanderers. All right, that's it for today's episode of Football Social Daily. As I mentioned earlier, Brian Chockey McClare, the legend that is, will be speaking to us on Wednesday's edition of the podcast. Some cracking stories he's got from his time at Manchester United and Celtic. He actually started his career at Aston Villa and he touches on that a little bit as well. So make sure you hit subscribe and that way you won't miss it. But from myself, Joel and Jim, that is it. We'll speak to you tomorrow on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily is a voice work sport production for the Sports Social Podcast Network.